Make sure the mic is working. <laughs> yes, it is. Hello, everybody. Good day. Hello. Welcome back uh, to another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream series episode. <laughs> so many words. Um, but Merged Worlds is me sharing the Dungeons and Dragons storyline campaign that I have been writing and running for well over 30 years at this point. I've been telling it here on YouTube for over two years at this point, to be honest. So it's uh, definitely a passion project uh, and a very important part of my life that I get to share with you. Uh, welcome everyone who is here. I see Muttley and VMT popped by. Hello. And of course, hello, Miss Ashley and Mr. Jim. Seeing that Cooper twice pop up on my screen makes my heart feel good. <laughs> welcome. So uh, today... We uh, start a new chapter of this story. Um, last episode, we tied up the end of the Caradon storyline, uh, which was the group including Artis, Maeve, Petal, Ran, and Kip, um, and their quest to defeat the evil that was besieging the kingdom of Caradon. Uh, I was very excited by that episode. It was a lot of fun. Um, I thought I was really pleased with how well the storyline tied up and ended. Uh, from the feedback I've got from everyone else, um, I think most people who heard it also did, uh, which is awesome. And I can't tell you how awesome it is uh, having so many people reaching out and saying how much they're really enjoying the character of Kip. Uh, some people saying Kip has very quickly uh, joined the ranks of some of people's uh, favorite characters. So that's that's pretty awesome. I, I do definitely love hearing that. Uh, today, we will be uh, stepping ahead in time just a little bit, but we'll be joining the group of Seraph, Deacon, Mugen, and Dina and what they're up to now. And if you've been following the story, you know we kind of pop back and forth between these two groups because their stories... Uh, well, separated are very much tied together, um, and they're kind of moving through time, these two stories at the same time. And there will be uh, multiple instances when these storylines will collide, for lack of a better word. Um, so let's see. Uh, Michael, hey, <laughs> welcome. So, a lot of reading today. Uh, today's episode might be just a smidge on the short side. It's so hard to tell. Uh, just a, a peek behind the curtain there. Uh, when I am telling this story, it's so hard to know how much time the paper will take to share, right? When I do reading, I could spend six hours writing out ten pages and read that to you in 10-15 minutes, right? Or I could have one page of bullet points and that take me an hour and a half to tell out the part of the story. So it's very hard for me to judge how much story I have sometimes. Um, but I have a habit of saying this one's going to be a short one and then it's not. So I guess we'll see. Um, I'm going to begin, of course, by asking all of you who are listening to this or watching this on YouTube, please remember to click that like button. Uh, if you enjoy the Merge World story. And be sure to subscribe if you have not. We're actually just two subs away from hitting 20.4 thousand. We're like at 23.98 currently. Um, for those of you who might be listening to this on one of the many audio podcast platforms, uh, such as iTunes, 
or Spotify, Google Playlists, uh, Amazon Playlist uh, Podcasts. I'm up on all of them. Uh, please remember to give it a like there too. And if any of you out there are listening to one and would like to do me a favor and follow it on one of the other ones as well, uh, it definitely helps a lot, uh, especially if you give it a rating or the five stars and a review or whatever. Uh, all of that helps let me share the story with as many people as possible. And that's all I'm really trying to do with Merge Worlds. It's purely a passion project. But I did want to, before we jump right into that story, uh, touch on one thing. Because there was one thing that happened right at the near the end of the last story that uh, I, I'm not sure that I described the event adequately. Uh, because some people were confused. Some people got what I was going for and some people did not. So I wanted to clarify something. Uh, just as a point of clearing that up before we jump to that. And it's back in the origin, the other storyline, the Caradon, at the very end of that story. If you haven't listened to this yet, if you haven't listened to the last episode, pause it, go back, listen to that, and then come back here. I'll wait. Okay, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> there was a man in an alleyway who was speaking on a uh, communication globe, which are these little uh, crystal balls that allow you to talk to other people with a matching ball across great distances. Uh, they've been a part of Merged Worlds, been hanging out in the storyline for a very long time. And uh, it was Kip who was speaking to someone through the orb. Um, there was some confusion on who he was speaking to, and I want to clarify, he was speaking to the Black Rose. Some folks thought he was speaking to someone else about the Black Rose, and that's on me for not adequately describing that. Some people got that and some people didn't. So I did want to clarify that point. He was speaking to the Black Rose because he is the one that she sent to keep an eye on this group. As to why or what or how, we haven't got into that yet, but Kip is definitely an agent of the Black Rose and uh, they don't know that. Cool. Wanted to clear that up for those of you who may have had some confusion there. But again, today's episode, we're going to be stepping into the Seraph side of the story, which it's been a little bit, because Caradon took up a few episodes, and then I was off two weeks ago and didn't have an episode, sorry for that. Uh, some dental issues, wasn't in the spot where I could talk for several hours. Uh, that's luckily all getting resolved tomorrow morning. Alright, so let's jump on in the story. I've meandered enough, I'd say. Uh, and we'll jump into this storyline. And for those of you wondering, no, we won't be talking about Tevin or his son this episode, or for a while. I'm going to just let that stew for a bit. So we're going to begin with some reading uh, to kind of set the beginnings of what is going to be this next chapter of the story. Uh, much like in previous episodes, this is the beginning of me setting that stage and getting you prepped to know what their focus or what's going to be going on with their storyline. So I'll begin with some light reading, and thank you all for coming. Seraph, Deacon, Mugen, and Dina made their way through the crowd towards the city gates. The market was packed with people buying and selling their goods. All around them were people of many races. There were humans, dwarves, and gnomes, as well as a fair number of goblins, orcs, minotaur, and even a few ogres. The city of Nemeria was known throughout the lands as a welcome place for any and all, as long as they behaved. The city guard was made up of some of the most well-trained warriors 
and they did their very best to make sure that the peace was kept in the city and its lands at all times. Seraph and his friends had spent the last few months moving further east, avoiding cities when they could. Their supplies, though, were almost gone, and they needed to get more. Learning of Numeria, they decided to take a chance. They had been wandering far too long without a destination, and it was time to make a plan of action, and for that they would need information. Fear of Oromon had kept them from returning home to Serenity. Closer to home also meant closer to Oromon, and while there had been no sighting of any of Oromon's forces since the day they'd found Dina, there was no doubt that they were out there somewhere still searching for her. Here in Nemeria, though, the large assortment of races and creatures allowed them an opportunity where their unusual group could blend in and go less noticed. It was definitely worth taking the chance. So, Dina and Deacon, regular human people, blend in anywhere, not a concern. Seraph is a sore thumb. Pale, somewhat elven, the huge mane of white hair that he has, uh, he's going to stand out in almost any situation. Um, and just as much as him is Mugen, because no one's seen a gully dwarf that looks like Mugen, with his bright-colored hair, his mohawk, the tattoos. To mention, he's incredibly well-armed and muscled, not something you're going to find in the average gully dwarf. So, the two of them very much so stick out in a normal situation. But in a city where literally anyone can be, including a large group of some of what would normally be considered the evil races, uh, it makes them a little less noticeable. The humans in charge of the gate gave them a good looking over, but no more so than he did any of the others, and they were finally allowed to enter. Nemoria was a unique city, an oddity in a world of oddities. When the great merging occurred, parts of worlds were thrust together to create this new realm. No better example of this was Nemeria. The city was, in fact, large pieces of three different worlds that had been merged together to become one great city. The first part was from a land only populated by humans. The second was from a land primarily filled with elves and dwarves who had been coexisting for centuries. And the last part was from a goblin trade city. As you could imagine, the shock of these cities being thrown together one night created chaos, and the first couple of years was filled with fighting and much bloodshed. It was the goblins, though, who started a path to peace. They brokered agreements with the other factions in the city, because again, this is one big city, three cities literally chunked together, in relatively even size. Right? They're not exactly like, perfectly cut like a pizza slice or nothing. You know what I mean? It, they, there's the merge. But there are three pieces of three big cities all crushed together to make one new city. And literally you're walking, take a step, and it's all different architecture as soon as you cross into that other city section of the world. Uh, let's see. They brokered agreements with the other factions and offered a new leadership structure that would lead to not only peace, but to great prosperity for all the cities. The last 20 years, Nemeria had grown and become a major power in this part of Merge Worlds, all while maintaining their peace. The city streets were busy as citizens bustled their way from place to place. 
A member of the city guard gave them some information about a few inns where they could find a place to stay. After a short look around, they made their way to the Old Willow, a small inn off the main street where it wasn't as busy and where they could be less seen. The Old Willow was an old building, yet well-maintained, and located at the edge of a small elven and dwarven crafting community. The inn was run by an elderly gnome named Dapper Windwood. His small staff was made up of mostly human and elves, but his cook was a half-orc that Dapper swore could do miracles with potatoes. They rented two rooms for three nights, and made sure they were located next to each other. They took a little time to settle in their rooms before meeting downstairs for a meal. So it's imperative that they have rooms that are right next to each other, side by side or doors across from each other. Now, Seraph and Dina are sharing a room, and Deacon and Mugen are sharing a room. Um, this is really just obviously common sense, but it's one of those things where there haven't been a lot of opportunities where they would really have separate rooms anyways. Most of the time, they're camping out in the open, although they have gone through the occasional small town or village when needed for supplies, information on the area, and so on. And that's where they learned about Numeria. Ow, that hurts. Okay, sorry. Um, so, they have their separate rooms, but they're close to each other. In case of a problem, they want to be right next to each other as much as possible. Now, Dapper had not been exaggerating, and their meal was the best they'd eaten in months. The bar-slash-dining room was about half full of patrons, but large enough that they had their privacy. They spent some time talking with Dapper, learning about the area and where they could get some supplies. Fortunately, most of what they needed could be found nearby, and there was even a maid shop where Deacon could restock on some of his spell components. After eating, it was early afternoon, early to mid-afternoon, they decided to visit the nearby elven shops. They purchased several different things and found everyone to be quite pleasant and welcoming. The city felt much like serenity in that way, and at no time did they feel stared at or questioned. People were just used to strange-looking people walking through a city of this nature. Now, they found an elven smithy who had, who had, um, who had offering excellent quality weapons. They purchased a fine, thin elven short sword and dagger for Dina. Over the past few months, the three men had each been taking turns teaching Dina how to fight. They all agreed she needed to be able to defend herself in the days and trials that may come up ahead. And she was, always do she was already doing quite well and capable, right? Dina's never had to fight. You know, probably as a kid, street fight, whatever. You know, she grew up in a city. But she's never been a trained warrior by any means. And in a situation where they now know that she's being hunted, clearly she's already been captured once, and uh, who knows what they're going to face up ahead as they continue to travel through a world that they and no one they've ever known has ever been through. There's going to be times where if they have to enter into combat, the better she is at defending herself, uh, the better it's going to be for all of them, right? Like, they're all going to be very protective of Dina. The whole reason they're out here is to try to save and protect Dina. But at the same time, Dina needs to also be able to take care of themselves. They're not babying her, trying to keep her out of stuff. They want her to be able to do what needs to be done. If they're in the middle of a fight and she needs to shove a sword through someone's face, by God, they want her to be able to do it. So immediately they all go into tree, and each of them brings their own different fighting style in. And Seraph's style, um, with how he fights, uh, is really not 
the best for Dina, right? Because he's so fast and agile in his speed, humans can't match that. And she's still a squishy. That is very correct. She is the squishy. She's the one in the middle. Your major cleric or your Dina, that's your squishy. And you keep them in the middle of your party order, 100%. <laughs> but um, the way Sarah fights, it would be hard for her to do that. That same type of style. Uh, if anything, she's learning probably in many ways more from Deacon, who, being a human, has also learned how to fight in a way that is complementary to Sarah. Here's how I fight at Seraph's side when I see what openings or weaknesses he has that I have to protect and how he can best do the same. When we're side by side, we know how to fight together. And she needs to learn the same thing. If I'm fighting with Seraph, beside him, I don't need to fight like him. I need to know how to fight in a way that's going to benefit us both, where he can do what he needs to do while helping me, and I can do what I need to help him. And now, mixing that in with being side-by-side -side with Deacon, and sometimes being side-by-side -side with Mugen. Mugen has actually taken to the point of starting to teach her to shoot. She's had some practice with his pistol, and in a pinch, he knows he wants to be able to say, here, and she's got one shot if she needs it. You know, she can reload it. She's learned that type of thing. She doesn't have one of his own, of her own. His ability to just make another one, you just can't do out there. It would take his own smithy materials and quite a while for him to make another good quality pistol. He only has his one. And it's incredibly good. It was made by his father and he knows how to make them and so on and so forth. Um, she knows how to use it. Seraph and Deacon haven't really taken any interest in learning how. They really don't need to. As quickly as a bullet goes, Seraph is about as fast if he needs to be. And Deacon has a multitude of different ranged spells and things at his disposal when needed. We've seen the fire from the last city they were in, right? So, for Dina, though, in a pinch, one shot could be the difference between life and death. So, he's taking the time. That's what he's teaching her. Um, and then she's learning a lot from Seraph and from Deacon for combat. So she is becoming capable. And over the last few months, she's learned basics enough that against, in a situation, she could probably hold her own a little bit. She's nowhere near an expert fighter, but she does have some of the best trained people teaching her. Wanted to cover that. So she's not a complete squishy. She is learning. Now, the elven blade they purchased was a much better fit for her than the sword they'd bought in a small village, and was of a much better quality. Seeing, her, seeing the delight on her face as she strapped on the scabbard made Seraph smile, though it was short-lived. The sword was just another reminder that she was always in danger, and Seraph couldn't help but take another look around for anything that might be a potential threat. So, you can imagine that there's very rarely a second, other than maybe going to the bathroom, that she is not within sight of Seraph, right? Seraph does not let her out, which is, I think, understandable. At the same time, she's fine with it. She doesn't want to be away from Seraph. At this point, everyone she's known and loved are dead. Her grandparents, her Uncle Kurgan's gone. Seraph is all she has left. And what the traumatic stuff that she's been going through over the past year, she, he's the one constant. He came through hell to get to her, and she's leaning upon him to basically help keep her safe and give her the tools to help keep herself safe. Um, and she immediately, she completely comes to trust Deacon. She knows Deacon. She was a member of Deacon's kingdom, right? She sees him as a prince and a member of royalty, and he definitely views her as, hey, you're my best friend's girl. At the same time, you're my friend, and you're one of my citizens, and it's my job to protect you in all three of those scenarios. So I'm going to take that seriously. 
And Mugen, of course, is the whole reason she's the whole reason he's even out in the world, right? So uh, she means a lot to him as well. The smith had agreed to craft more metal shot for Mugen and promised to have them ready before they left the city because he uses small balls, right? He's using pellets. The, his gun f- shoots musket balls for all intents and purposes. And it's not something he can just make on the fly. So finding someone who can make them the size of the metal he needs, he's going to have to order those. I need a bag of these metal balls. Can you make them and make them sturdy enough that they can be shot out of a mini cannon? And else, like, yeah, I can make those. It'll take me a few days. I'll make as many as I can. Sweet. I'll pay whatever I need to. So if, just with practicing with Dina, they're going to need more ammo. He's getting as much as he can. He also, while they're in the city, will get the things he needs to make some more of the magical black powder that makes them go, you know, boom. Gunpowder. He knows how to mix and make it. Uh, As the sun began to drop below the city walls, they made their way back to the old willow to the promise of the first hot bath and good night's sleep any of them will have had in months. And... That's true, right? Even small villages, they're in. If they stay in an inn for the night, they're gone early the next day. They try not to stay around populated for too long. A, the fear Oromon's there, but B, Oromon could come through later. They don't want to show up on anybody's radar any longer or more than they have to. Now, two things to be aware of at this point in time. Number one, Seraph has proposed to Dina, and she has accepted The ring that he had crafted for her, that he'd never had the chance to give her, she now wears at all times. So they are betrothed, engaged, whatever you'd like to call it. But they have not yet gone and gotten married or anything of that nature. Because they both hope that they'll be able to return home to Serenity so that Seraph's mother can do the the service. Because they would want that, right? Why would he not want his mom, or even worst case scenario, Mercy, the queen, like, what a great thing, to have them marry them. Right? Um, and Ashley says, and their BO could scare off bad guys. That's right. Use anything as a weapon in combat, even your stank. <laughs> now, that's, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to figure out how to roll that in D&D. There are creatures that have stank as an ability. So, I guess it's possible that type of data does exist in some of the rule books, at least in second edition. Speaking of which, for those of you who are watching the video, you'll see I have standing next to me, leaning on my desk, an Advanced Dungeon Dragons second edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Because when I'm writing these stories, I still try to stay within the realm of how D&D works and uh, like to partake in some of the uh, magical items and stuff that exist within that world. Even though I do create a lot of my own, this is very much a D&D storyline. So it's within reach at all times. You never know when the Dungeon Master needs to pull out his guidebook, right? No matter how long you've been DMing. So she's wearing that ring. They are engaged, betrothed, right? Another reason why they're given their privacy when they have their own room when that's possible. The second thing, part of that to be aware of, is that Dina is now also wearing the amulet that Seraph was wearing that originally was owned by Draven. It's an amulet that makes you immune from scrying, right? That's why he took his dad's amulet, so his mom and dad couldn't come out there and find him and stop him from going after Dina. That was his way of keeping that from happening. To be honest, at this situation, they have Dina. If his mom and dad popped in today, it'd be a sigh of relief, because that's bringing a lot of power 
of defense to their side, right? Uh, they don't go home because they know that the closer they get to home, the more they're going to have to deal with Oromon and its spies and searchers. But having the mom and dad show up now would be perfectly fine. At the same time, hiding Dina from being scried by anyone is imperative, right? She's the one who's really being sought after. Um, Oromon may not even know that it's Seraph that has her, right? He kind of killed everybody that was there who had her at that time. And if Captain Endian successfully did what he was doing with that ship, none returned home from that vessel that dropped those Ormanians off to tell their tale either. So they may not know who has Dina at this point. And so there's less of a chance they would be scried. And there's at this point no knowledge if someone could even scry Mugen with his overwhelmingly powerful anti-magic abilities, right? Immune to magic, both pro and con. So if anything, someone could search for Deacon, but they could have done that the whole time and maybe Seraph, but they don't want anyone being able to find Dina. And so she wears that amulet at all times, even when she's sleeping. It's imperative she never takes that off. Ouch! I'm so thirsty, but it hurts so much to drink carbonation. Okay. Uh, Let's see where we left off here. Okay. So the next morning gets up. They've had a good night's sleep. They all had a chance to take a nice hot bath. They're clean for the first time in forever. Uh, they've even, Dapper has even offered a service where they've got some of their clothes cleaned and such. So uh, they are feeling very good this morning. It's, especially you consider that, with maybe the exception of Mugen, these are three people that were used to being clean, right? Seraph and Deacon are the equivalent of royalty. Deacon is, and Seraph might as well be. They were raised, they had hot baths every day, clean clothes, they had people to take care of that stuff for them if they needed to. And even Mugen kept himself pretty clean, especially when you consider he's a gully dwarf. Dina was uh, not wealthy by any means, but their family had a business and a home, so that would have been available to them as well. Being out living in the, in the wilds, if you will, um, is different. They can do it. It's not incapable of it. They've had the training. But still, they, every one of them be like, oh, I'm so glad I can have a bath. They're just the kind of people who would enjoy that. So after they, you know, that morning they get a plus one armor class. That could true. I wonder, wonder if the, I didn't make the engagement ring magical. I should have done that. That'd have been funny. But no, I didn't make the engagement ring magical anyway. It is a normal and yet uh, very pretty engagement ring. Uh, so they uh, they get up and they're going down. They get themselves yet another delicious meal. And while they're eating, and the room's a little bit fuller this time, they have the opportunity to sit and chat with Dapper a little bit. Once he's seen and people are kind of settled, he comes by and learns a little bit about them. They get a chance to talk a little bit to him. They're asking some more information. Hey, we're going to go to that magic maid shop today. Can you give us some directions? Where would we find that? He does so on and so forth. Of course, they ask a few more questions about the city. And it's during this conversation that um, they decide to try something. They discussed it the night before. They all knew this was going to happen. And it was Deacon who is slyest of tongue. Right? Seraph's natural state is to be the quiet person and not do much talking. So very often he, he speaks very little. Deacon does the majority of the speaking for the group. As a prince and public speaker, he has tons of experience doing that. Uh, and Seraph is just more happy to be slid back into the shadows. Dina is also a bit of a more uh, open 
extroverted kind of person, right? She would go through the city singing and dancing and selling her flowers. She has no problem with that. So uh, she's more comfortable talking than Seraph is. And very often, you know, if when they're by themselves, they'll spend hours he'll just talking to her, but most of it's her talking and him listening, and he, he just adores that. Um, but in this situation, Deacon is preparing for something special. And in the middle of the conversation, he slides in a question about Oromon. Uh, that they'd heard of a, a city of Oromon. Was there any? Had, had did Dapper know anything about a kingdom of Oromon? Just kind of poking into the city, and Dapper very clearly is like, "I've never heard of that. I have no idea what Oromon is. Is that is that a person, a place, or a thing? What's that?" And they believe him. They're testing to say, "Hey, is there anything? Has more around Oromon been asking for something? Are we are we being hunted? You know, they hadn't seen any signs of Oromon, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. Pandora's spies, if anyone, are better than anyone else at hiding in plain sight." But they uh, all see a, a bit of a sigh of relief, knowing that uh, he genuinely seems to have no knowledge of the term Oromon or the kingdom or anything of that nature. And they don't mention Serenity, of course, again, trying not to link themselves too much to their past. So the very, by the time the meal is done, they're feeling very relieved about that, and they decide to make their way towards the Mage Shop. Now, the Mage Shop is known as the Vanishing Penny, and... Uh, it's located not super far away, but a short part away the distance to the town, a little bit more on the edge of what would be the goblin section of the city. Now, when I say that, I mean it was originally the go- came from the goblin world, but over the last 20 years, the city has really become a hodgepodge of races, and all sorts of races live throughout each section of the city. Um, you'll still find more of a certain race living in a certain city as that land has been passed down or sold to others and such. Um, But there's much more mixed and the people in the city really seem to be okay with that. Um, As they talk to people and see people, there's no dirty looks at different races or, yeah, at least you're not one of them crummy orcs or crummy goblins. There's none of that going on. The people have found that these other factions legitimately just want to live in peace and be prosperous and they found a way to do that together. The city is basically ruled by a group, a trifecta, if you will, a section from a group from each section um, that have equal votes and oversee the city. Three uh, from the elven dwarven section, three from the goblins, merchants, and then three from the humans. And so there's a big, but they, it's they they rule as a council, if you will. Uh, and at this point, there's really no reason to think that that's not going smashingly, if you will. So they make their way to the Vanishing Penny. Now, when they arrive, you know, there's a gentleman standing outside the door, a very large gentleman who's very well armed, and he's just kind of looking at them as they go through, but he makes no mention to stop them. Uh, as they've moved throughout the city, something that's very apparent is the incredibly large amount of city guard. Uh, and they are noticeably so. One moment, I have to sneeze. Okay, I, I swallowed it back. Uh, I thought I was going to sneeze it. Um, so, you know, there's, they're everywhere, right? And they're not picking on people, causing problems. They're just there. A constant presence. And a lot of them are big humans, male and female, muscular, really cut in city guard uniforms, well-armed and armored. Ogres, goblins as well, even elves and dwarves. All of them are just clearly the types, when you look at them, you're like, I don't want to mess with that person. That person will mess me up if I cause trouble. 
and they're just a constant everywhere. And this person appears to be one of that ilk who's kind of guarding the entrance to this door. They don't interfere with people. They're there to make sure that the peace is kept. And by this point, where Numeria in its age, the populace find that comforting. They've made peace with themselves. They made peace with the factions and they're living harmoniously. But people from all races are coming to and from the city and others may be bringing that bias or hatreds of old uh, racisms with them. And they don't want that spreading. Someone comes in and starts picking a fight because they don't like a goblin or they don't like an elf, the city guard will squash that quickly. Even if that means squashing them. So they make it and they make their way in. Now, the entrance to the mage shop has a spell cast upon it. And this is a very common spell for mage uh, or magic users to use, both on their homes and on their businesses. And it is a magical... <laughs> I've always described... It's a spell I created, but it's basically like a magical jello. Let me explain. Imagine if you're walking through a door. Way. I mean, doorway. The door's open, obviously. But you're walking through an open doorway. And the doorway is how thick is a wall, right? That, you know, five, six inches, eight inches, a bunch of centimeters, depending on what your measurement style is. It's not that thick. What the spell does is when you step into it, it's like stepping into jello. And you're moving incredibly slowly. And it could take you a good full minute to walk through that door. This does a couple of things. Other spells cast there to detect alignment, things of that nature, to let you know if someone coming in is a threat or a thief. Even Nemeria has its thieves, right? you got to imagine a city as big and uh, wealthy as this. Um, this is a way of making sure of that. So someone's coming through there and the other spells go off saying, this person's a problem. Anyone in the store has plenty of time to react on whoever this person is who's going very slowly through the door. Uh, it is cast in such a way that it only affects those coming in the door. It does not affect people who are leaving. Uh, although the spell can be, with a command word, basically cause it to go solid where you can't go through the door. Someone tries to steal something, command word's given, they can't get out that door. It's the only exit of the room. I use the spell a lot. Um, I have the stats for it on a paper in one of my books, and Occasionally, a mage will know how to cast it, but uh, if it's a type of spell you, you like to play D&D &D and you'd like to know what that spell is, or like to use it yourself, let me know. I'll put the stats up on our Discord channel or on the website, somewhere where you can get a hold of it. I'm going to do that with a lot of Merge World spells and magic items that people might be interested in using. So if you hear me talk about a magic item or a spell or an artifact and you'd like more specific information so you may be able to use a version of that in your own adventure, feel free to let me know. If there's something about the artifact I can't tell you because it's yet to be found out in the story, I might say, hey, I can't until we get to that point. But, um, you know, I mean, most of the time, if it's a spell, I can throw it out there. Robert Earl Warrior King Clay III. Whew, that's a fancy name. Hey, I would love to see the stats for that spell. Excellent. Yeah, I will uh, track it down. Uh, not tomorrow because I'm having dental surgery and I'll probably be very high. But Thursday, I'm off. I will post it up on the Discord. Link to that's down below. Um, and I'll see if I can start... I wanted to make a page for that type of stuff for some downloadable content, including my own customized character sheets that I've put together. Um, I'm Second edition, of course. Uh, I'll start putting that up there, uh, hopefully Thursday, where people can go up and download that or get that from the website. So yeah, just keep an eye on that next day or two, and uh, I will get that out there for you.
play. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so, very cool spell. So you can imagine, right? Deacon's there first. He's a magic user. He sees the signs of this spell. He's probably warned his friends, hey, something like this could be here. It's quite common. Here's what it's like. Um, Seraph being his best friend, probably been in a magic shop with him before. Remember, he got a special spell made for uh, Petal years earlier, uh, Deacon did. And so they... He, Sarah's probably has some knowledge on it as well. Dina, not so much. Neither would probably Mugen. It's the first mage shop Mugen's going to have the opportunity to go in. So, Deacon goes through first. Right? This is very slow motion. And for you, it feels very slow motion. Everyone else just sees jello and you're through, right? I say jello is the feel. You're, you can breathe fine. It's not physically jello. You don't come out sticky. I'm going to make a spell about that, though. So, <laughs> then, and then after that, Dina goes through, right? Seraph's going to come from behind, keep keep Dina between him and Deacon, most defendable place. And last person to go through is Mugen. And everyone, the store owners, the patrons of the store, even his friends, are quite shocked when Mugen steps through the door as if nothing is there. So much so that he's the last one to enter the door, yet still the first one through. And he steps in and he's like, where'd everybody else go? And he turns around and then whoop, Deacon comes out. And then whoop, Dina. And then whoop, Sarah. He's like, he's got a confused look. He's like, I thought you were in the front of the, did I, would I dream that? And the mage who owns the shop, appears to be a human, definitely looks concerned, you could imagine. How did this person just get through that spell? And didn't set off any of my no alignment spells, detect magic spells, whatever spells I have to know who's coming into my shop. Walked through it, setting off none of it, and completely ignored the spell on the door. Deacon immediately realizes what's happened. Mugen's immunity to magic literally just negated all the effects of whatever spells were there. The only one he would know of is the door. He doesn't know what other sensory spells, but he can assume there's probably some. So he quickly steps ahead of Mugen and strikes up a conversation with the owner before the owner has a chance to kind of freak out or call for help or whatever the case is. Introducing himself and his companions and saying, I'm sure you have questions about my young friend here. Please let me explain to you and he gives him a bit of the true basic story. My friend was born and raised in an, in, in an area that was a dead magic zone. All mages know what those are, or should know something of them. And as such, has, has some type of basic immunity to some magics. So he passed through your spell because he's immune to it. Well, of course, this just strikes up a whole new conversation. And the mage who owns the shop, uh, who introduced himself as Lodon the Blue, who's a male human, immediately calls for his wife, Shen Skulldrinker, a female orc, uh, who is also a mage, uh, and comes from, she comes from the back room, and he's like, come here, and he tells him what happened. And it goes from a concerned to just a very curious, right? What mage wouldn't be? He did what? How? Let's, can we talk about this? Can I see him? And they're poking Mugen a little bit, and Mugen's like, hey, that's tickle, stop that, you know, you know whatever, you know? And they're just a conversation about that. While Dina and Seraph kind of stand there and look around the shop a little bit, the other patrons, what few were in there, go back about their business. 
but all is made well, especially when Deacon uh, or, and, and Mugen you know, talk to him and agree that they'll let him cast a couple little spells on Mugen that would not harm him, just to see what happens, and nothing does, and they're just, oh, this is amazing, this is, we're going to take notes and such, and start chatting about it. So that becomes a conversation piece, which definitely opens the door for Deacon to say, hey, yes, and I'm here, I'm also a mage as well, and so on and so forth. That's why he's traveling with me, because I too find it quite curious. And we go around experimenting and such, and I'm in need of some components. And he gets haggling and makes a deal and gets some of the stuff that he needs. Uh, like many people, he can gather a lot of his components out and about, but since he doesn't have a home, he can't really grow the herbs and some of the flowers he needs. And some of the stuff you get would literally just go bad over time like a snake stomach or a bat wing. If you don't have it dried, I'm just saying, if you dry your bat wing, you're okay. But if you don't dry it, it'll just crumble. You'll dry it in a special way, like jerky, if you will. It's, it's a whole thing. I have a whole pages upon pages about the creation and care of spell components and what can go involved with that to both uh, elongate the time that they're good uh, as well as add or remove value and potency to those things. Something I had a mage a long time ago really wanted to go in depth on that because they wanted a mage shop. Uh, and so we sat down and worked out a lot of the technicals on it. It's kind of fun to... I like that stuff. For me, it just adds lore. So when I have a character like this in the story, right? Loden steps out and they're like... And he's like, in my head, he's that mage with the shop and all the stuff we talked about is now that. And he, he and I designed this spell for the door and that's where it all came from. So just that kind of thing. Uh, so again, the uh, husband and wife, the two mages, discuss and talk and so on and so forth. Uh, during this conversation, Deacon learns that uh, they're aware of the Brotherhood of Magic. And that it operates far, far to the west. Uh, but even the Brotherhood of Magic is known somewhat in this area. Probably reaching out, testing mages and mage affiliations in the area to say what's going on, can we extend our group, can we maybe absorb other groups to uh, in increase our thing, because the Brotherhood of Magic is the primary governing body of mages in what we use as our standard merged worlds area, Pax of All, Arduel, Darstopia, Serenity, all that, right, the towers are everywhere. Over here, though, they don't really have a, uh, a hold yet, in fact, uh, Nemoria actually has a mage guild that oversees mages here in much the same way. Um, and also governs the, uh, I guess you could say, trade of magical items, artifacts, and spell components, right? Because you can imagine that there are spell components out there that are not uh, the friendliest thing, right? Like, you know, some things would just be cruel, heart of a human, or whatever the case may be, you know, something like that. You know, child from a t tooth from a toddler. And there's a lot of weird things out there that an evil spell might need. So things, some some of these things are blacklisted. They are not legally tradable within the city or their mages, kind of thing. So they kind of govern that. Uh, same with creatures of you know enslaving magical creatures. I'm like, no, that's an intelligent creature. You can't have that as a pet, and you can't cut it up for spell components. That thing's smarter than you. No, give me that. You know, that's against the law to do that to that type of thing. So they oversee all that in this area. But they are aware of the Brotherhood of Magic, although neither of them, husband or wife, have ever heard of Oromon, and even with the word serenity, no familiarity to them. Means nothing. Lands far to the west? Maybe. Never been anywhere near that direction. They're from this city originally. They're probably in their uh, 40s, 
at this point. So they were in their early, late teens, early 20s when the merge happened, maybe. Uh, so they've always been of this area. They've always been in the city. Um, while they're there, they do make a couple purchases, right? Not just of spell components, but this husband and wife team also have a selection of magical items and gear. In a mage shop, if your DM runs it well, there's nothing of superpower there. You should never be able to buy a named magical item that just breaks your game, right? You shouldn't even be able to buy a bag of holding, unless it's a temporary one. I have a bag of holding, I'm a mage, I've learned how to make these bag of holdings, and they'll last for 30 days. 30 days. At the end of 30 days, get your stuff out, because it becomes a regular bag, and if you don't, anything that's in there is lost to the astral realm. Right? Limited version of magic items could be purchased. But, adequate potion stock, that's something that you can find. And so potions they were able to get a hold of. Uh, Serms that they work with one of the temples in the area and had on hand a few potions of healing. They were able to purchase three of them. Potions, of course, these things still aren't cheap, but these guys are carrying a fair bank with them. And even though they brought a bunch of money, the gems and stuff Mugen has with his shinies... Uh, is incredibly valuable. Um, and they're careful to not spend his stuff, of course, but, you know, he chips in. And they were also able to get a potion of fire resistance. It was the only other thing they had that they thought, you know what, this might be beneficial. Uh, Mugen, depending on the fire, if it's magical, he might not even be affected by it. Seraph is quick enough, he can usually zip through. But for Dina, maybe, or even Deacon in the right situation, it might be benefit. So they did purchase a potion of fire resistance. I mention these things because you'll notice that while we talk about Merge World, I very often don't discuss the magic items somebody finds unless they're super important, right? Flying carpets, chests of holdings. Um, I'm going to be a little bit better about that, especially if I plan on bringing these items into the story. Not saying that I will with all of them, but it would make sense if I say he whips out a potion of fire resistance and you're like, when the hell did he get a potion of fire resistance? I'd like to draw back to that. Much like in the last Caradon adventure, I pointed that the only magic item they walked out of there with was uh, Giant Slayer, the huge two-handed sword that they took from the king that uh, uh, Maeve is currently carrying. Right? I made that point that they got that. That was the only thing they came out of there that was magical loot, if you will. Whew! Thirsty man. Okay. No, I'm going into a lot of detail here. I'm setting up a lot. Bear with me. Um, so they uh, they managed to make those. They kind of chat with the folks and such. But after they finally get everything they want, they're like, "Okay, it's time to leave. We're going to head back." They go around. They leave the maid shop, friendly with the people, and then do a little bit more random shopping around the city. Right? Maybe pick up some new clothes. Um, fortunately. The one one of the few skills Dina brings to the party that they didn't have was the ability to sew. They could rough it, but neither or none of them really knew how to sew. Mugen had a little bit of it. Mugen was the most... He had been trying to keep their clothing in repair, right? Because they'd been in fights and been cut and slashed and there's holes in their clothes, and he'd been doing the best he could. Um, Dina has that ability. She's also 
uh, came from a shop that was an herbalist. So when they're out looking for herbs and things, these are some things that she's actually looking for that they buy based on her recommendations that she can maybe mix together to help be uh, like, you know, poultices for healing or creams, things that are natural remedies that she has knowledge of that they may not or they don't have as much of. She's much more knowledgeable about herbalism than any of them. Deacon is kind of. And Seraph knows about the dangerous ones which there aren't many that are dangerous to him, right? Um, uh, I did want to also touch on this. Because I have been asked in the past uh, a couple of times, I, do want to, I did want to answer this question on the storyline. Dina knows about Seraph occasionally having to drink blood. Okay? There's no way he's going to be in a relationship and ask her to marry him without her knowing about that. She knows about the flask. No, he's never taken a sip from her, and nor would he ever do it in, even if he was dying. He's not going to do that, right? It's like crossing a line. He won't cross that. But she is aware of it. She understands that this is a requirement for him uh, in order for him to survive and sees it as such. Um, but, you know, the same type of thing. She's like... You don't, like, eat kids, right? No, I don't eat kids. You don't eat old people? No, unless they're jerks. Criminals, maybe, but just bad people. Okay, I'm okay with that. That kind of thing. She has an understanding of it, even though uh, he's never let her see it. She's never... He's never... None of them, Deacon included, has ever seen him drink from a living person. They don't even know if he has. He could leave camp, go into a village, drink for someone and come back, and they wouldn't even know he's gone if he plays his cards right. Um, But most of the time... Occasionally, they'll see him take a shot from the flask, and everyone just kind of ignores it because they know he's self-conscious about it. They don't draw attention to it. It just happens when he needs to, and that's that. But no one asks him how or when he refills it, which he does occasionally. Wanted to touch on that. All right, let's move forward a little bit, shall we? They make their, after buying some clothing and some gear and some stuff they need, maybe some string, some sewing needles, maybe some fish hooks. Hey, we're going to be out traveling around. Let's get some things we need to survive on, right? Flint and steel, things, maybe a new, a good whetstone for sharpening blades while we're out and about. Some of those things that maybe they've ran out of are, are low on. Some candles and so on and so forth. They get those things. But finally, as it's getting a little bit early in the afternoon, they decide to head back to uh, the Old Willow and get themselves something to eat. There's lots of little carts and stuff with food. They probably had a snack. But the food's there really good, and they feel comfortable there. And it's private enough that they feel comfortable being able to kind of let down their guard and have a meal. So they return. And I have more reading. The friends were sitting in the dining room of the Old Willow, enjoying a late lunch. The room was only sparsely attended, so they sat near the back of the room in a corner and had pretty much that section of the place to themselves. Very private. They were discussing what they needed to do next. They knew that to the south, somewhere was the Central Sea. The fastest way, and that would be the fastest way home. You'll remember that Merged Worlds, if you were to look at the map, is a big donut, and in the middle of it is the Central Sea. For the longest time, Paxwell, who's on the top of that, thought that was the bottom of the world. Thought that was just an ocean. But it's so big, they learned that there's really world all the way around it. Again, just to encompass how big this world, this realm, really is, 
It is on a massive scale. They know somewhere to the south is the Southern Sea, which would be the fastest way home. They had allies there as well, powerful allies, like Captain Endian and Darsh Fohammer. So if they could make it down there and, and make contact with one of these, Captain Endian or Darsh probably could get them home. Seraph knows about the mirror from Darsh's house that could write them back home again. They, even if they could get to Darsh's place, it's the fastest way home. Captain Indian could get him there, or close to it, where they'd be able to meet up with Darsh. So that's an option. Unfortunately, the Armanians sailed those waters as well. And were likely watching for Seraph and, and Dina uh, at many of the ports. So that's a th- concern. The closer so they get to that, the closer their better chance of running into Ormanians. We already know Ormanian had ships searching that area for Dina, because Indian went chasing after one. There could be more of those. To the east, they learned, was a great mountain range. But they'd also learned that there was only one way to pass through them to the lands beyond, and that that pass was fraught with many dangers, and usually only large groups traveled through there. Not only from natural dangers, it's a very unsafe winding and uh, uh, trail through the uh, mountains, right? Cliffs and fall off and die. But there were things living in the mountains that weren't that friendly as well. To the north, they would find a great swamp. Way up to the north. This is what they've learned while they're in town, especially from uh, the little gnome that, that had the place. And he's like, yes, far up to the borders of what we know, there is a huge swamp. But even after all these years, no one in this area knew what lie beyond it. Very few who'd ever entered the swamp had ever returned. And those few that did always returned mad, screaming of beasts and demons and creatures unlike anything everyone had ever heard of before. And of course, finally to the west, that from which they came was just not an option. None of them felt comfortable coming back from where they came from. That's where Ormanians, and we've already discussed that, right? So these are kind of what they have to choose from. Okay, do we go north and try to go through this swamp that no one survives in? Do we go east and try to go through this mountain range that's super dangerous, and we may have to join up with a large group of people we don't know and have to trust them for our survival? Do we go south, potentially running into one of the more possible situations to run into Oramon, but where we also have a better chance of finding the contact that we might be able to make benefit of. Right? None of those are great options. Right? They all have pros and cons to them. Uh, to the swamp, if no one goes up there, comes back, but they can get through, much less chance anybody's going to follow them. Right? And you got to think that these young folks are very confident in their skills and ability, with good reason. The things that they've already done and are capable of doing are far beyond the scope of a normal group of three or four people just hanging out in a town, right? Seraph's skills, Deacon's magic, Mugen's knowledge. I mean, with what they bring to that table, they believe we could potentially make it through this swamp where no one else has. Although, thinking like that has gone... When one too many heroes into something, uh, biting off something bigger than they could chew, if you would. Hmm. 
So they're deep in conversation. And there's kind of different thoughts about which way they should go and what they should do. And they're all just kind of talking, giving their points, pros and cons, and having this conversation. Okay. Uh, where did I leave off? So they sat there again, enjoying each other's company and the fine meal while they discussed the journey ahead. When suddenly, about that time, Seraph Bloodborne came a deep voice from across the room. There was no hesitation, and Seraph was on his feet immediately, sword in hand. Deacon and Mugen were also on their feet in an instant later. The three stood armed with Dina behind them. Dina also had drawn her dagger to hand, a sign of her training, building her instinct. So she was up, got her dagger out. What's going on? But the three guys stand with their weapons out with her behind them. This is what their instincts have, have been built to do. So he's out, got his sword in front of him, and all three of them are looking at where this voice came from. You shall not have her, sir, Sarah said with clear danger in his voice. And if you try, today shall be your last. The man across the room smiled. I didn't come from her for her, he said. I've come for you. He was a dark-skinned man, dressed from head to toe in fine leathers. All his clothes were a dark crimson red, with little bits of black here and there, including the large hat that sat on his clearly shaved or cleanly shaved head. A very fine-looking rapier was sheathed to his belt. I'm afraid you'll find the same answer regardless, said Deacon. You're not an easy man to find, Seraph, said the man. I've come a long way to do so, he said, taking a step towards them. No further, hissed Seraph. The man stopped and raised his hands. You've no need for weapons, son. I've not come to bring you harm. I've come to ask for your help. After all, I'm an old friend of your father's. Seraph was stunned. Still, he was on his guard. I've known Draven a long time, the man continued, since before your birth. We've worked together several times. And in some ways, you could say, I helped him meet your mother. Deacon and Mugen looked at Seraph in confusion. Seraph still had not moved, and the few other patrons in the inn sat there silently. My name is Red, said the man. Hear what I have to say. If you don't like my words, I will leave, and you'll not see me again. It's up to you. It's your choice, Seraph. It's always going to be your choice. Immediately, Seraph's thoughts raced back through his memories. Those words, that phrase, he'd heard that before. He couldn't remember why or what they'd been discussing. He'd been just a child. But he clearly remembered his mother saying those words. He remembered how worried she'd sounded.
Seraph lowered his sword slightly. He decided. The man smiled again. I'll surrender my weapon if it makes you feel better. Seraph sighed. That won't be Nessa. Yep, said Mugen. We do that. The little man stomped confidently up to the man in red and held out his hands. Hmm, hmm. So Sarah's like, no, you don't have to. Mugen's like, yep, we're totally going to do that. Stomp, stomp. Give it. Come on. Red smiled, slowly drew his sword, and handed it to the little man. Mugen turned and carried it back to the table setting it against the wall behind where he'd sat. Sarah smiled at his little friend and then motioned for the man to join them. Red took a seat opposite them, the furthest place from Dina that he could, assuming he did that out of courtesy. You can imagine the first thing Sarah said is, you can't have her. Clearly they're protective of her. So Red sat as far from her as possible. Set them a little bit of e at ease. Would you like to see what red looks like? For those of you who are listening to the audio podcast, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com, and under the characters page, you'll see colored minty, painted minis for all the different characters that I talk about in these streams. At least all the main characters. Red is someone we've spoken to before. He was in the story a very long time ago, back when Artemis and Draven were chasing after Draven's brother. Some of you may remember that. But that is Red, who dresses all in red. Coincidentally, right? They sat there in silence a moment, waiting for him to speak. Red seemed to be preparing to choose his words carefully. If what he's saying is true, he's wanting to make a good impression with what he's about to say, so he's being careful. As I said, my name is Red. Mugen nodded, looking at his clothes, like, yeah, that's obvious, we can see that. I am a man who finds things. People places, things, doesn't matter. I have a gift, you see. I was born with it. I see things others cannot. Connections, patterns, clues and signs. I can see how things connect in ways most people never can. And I also have an ability to sense things. When I'm searching for something, something specific, I find myself pulled towards it, or to things I will need in order to find it. I don't always know how or why, but all things become clear in time. This is how I helped your father, Seraph, in times past. It is the same way I found that I needed you. The pieces came together, and I knew you were important to my quest. I sought you first in serenity, only to learn I'd missed you by a matter of weeks. I did not reveal myself to your parents, my senses telling me it was for the best. Through my contacts in serenity, I learned you'd left, and why. I am honest 
when I tell you I'm glad you found your love safely. I'm pointing towards Dina. So I found out why you left Serenity. Glad to see that it was successful. You went to find her. Clearly you found her. It was there that I lost you in Serenity. I could no longer sense you. Which is something that had never happened before. Although, seeing now the amulet Dina is wearing, I know why. So he's familiar with that amulet or that type of amulet. He's like, ah, you were wearing something that blocks people from finding you. That's why when you left Serenity, I couldn't find you. Fortunately for me, though, you all are not very good at hiding your trail. And at this point, you can imagine them all looking at each other like, shit, <laughs> dang it, that's not good to hear. For him, anyways. I followed you across the world, not gaining any ground. Not until a few months ago. Suddenly, I could sense you again. I imagine that's when you gave the amulet to Dina. Once I knew where you were, it was just a short trip to get here as quickly as I could. And here, in this city, I have found you. And so now that I'm here, and you're before me, definitely, I know that I need you to be successful to find what I'm looking for. So that's how his power works. That's a gift he was born with. Not only can he just be he's really good at putting clues together, a very Sherlock Holmesian kind of mind, if you will, seeing how things connect that others don't, details and such. But he has an actual gift could be seen as magical. That he literally can sense I'm looking for something. What I need is this north. I don't know how far but it's north. It's west. It's somewhere in this city. It's that side of the city. The sense can differ depending on what, who or what he's looking for. But he has that gift. And it's natural. Because that's the first thing the deacon asks. Are you a mage? Some kind of prophet? How is it that you know these things that you know? And he says, A mage, no. Though my gift is of a kind of magic. He says, Because I am a follower of fate. It is the power of fate, an ancient power, as old as the existence itself. We all are tied together by our fates. And it is through those fates that I can sense things. My fate to find the thing I'm looking for requires me to intertwine with your fate. Our fates intertwine at some point to get to this thing that I need, to find this place I'm trying to find, to find the person that I'm seeking for. It is fate that leads me to connect with the fates of others. Dina asks, what god is it that controls the power of fate. Because, you know, they immediately start thinking of all the gods. Well, wouldn't be this one. Wouldn't be death. You know, <laughs> kind of all that kind of stuff. Red just kind of smiles. And he says, fate is not a god. Although, some those of us who follow fate would uh, believe that it's a, it's a power just as strong, if not stronger. That it is fate that even entwines the gods, their fates, 
literally are entwined within this power as well, right? Fate sees everything throughout existence, and it always has. Even the gods. Which you could kind of see that in many stories of fables that include gods, right? This person is fated to fight the, his because his god is this, and that person, Pandora, right? Pandora, goddess of lies, had the emperor. Mercy follows the god of truth. You could just see those two were fated to bump heads at some point. Fate brought those two together. But is fate a person? And he's like, no, it's not a person, it's not a god. It's an over. It's a natural sense of magic that holds existence together. It's part of existence. And entwined in every person, place, and thing that exists. Everything has its fate. A butterfly is fated to, to live its day or two and do its thing. The plant is fated to grow and die in the winter. Fate entwines everything. And some say that fate may have a guiding hand, but no one worships fate like it's a like it's a god. It doesn't have a name or anything like that. There's not like a you know that. I'm trying not to try not to draw you to that conclusion. But fate is a very powerful force in all of existence. And it is fate that has led red to them. I'm a man who finds things. And I'm looking for something. And to get that, I need you, Sarah. And now that I'm here seeing your allies, I can't help but think that they, of course, will also be of assistance in this matter, though I know not how or why or who. I just know I need you. But everyone brings something special to the table here. And what is it you seek? Asks Seraph. What is it that you seek? If you're looking for something and you want my help to find it, and you've traveled across the world over the last year to find me, must be something pretty important. Right? I mean, that's, that's a lot of effort to put into to find one guy because your sense tells you you need me to do this. What is it that you seek? Red's smile fades a little bit. And he says, Of course. Should I have to know, of course, what that is. I'm searching for a crown. A circlet, really. A band worn above the brow. In the center, it holds a gem. And this circlet is very powerful. It's very magical. And I need it to save a man's soul. You're very intrigued by this. You find magic items sweet. You don't need it for wealth. You're not doing it for power of your own. You say you need it for a, to save a soul. And how would this save someone's soul? He goes, I will tell you what I can. And at this time, I was approached by a woman about two years ago. She had been sent to me by others I had assisted in the past. And she came to me cloaked to hide her identity. I knew, but from people. So no one knew she was coming to meet me. He obviously knew who she was. He clears that up. Though her identity at this time, I cannot reveal. Part of the promise that I made when I took on this venture. 
but it had been seemed that her son's soul had been taken. There was a nemesis of this family, an enemy that the family had fought against for years. And as a way to get even with this woman's husband, this enemy attacked their child, a young man the age of 14. And using some sort of magic, was able to take his soul and has it trapped inside of a gem. The gem itself is nigh unbreakable. And no other way has been found to get his soul out. His body lays there wasting away. But the soul is trapped inside the gym and they cannot communicate with it. Though, they do have the gym. What she came to me was to find a way to save her son. That's what she was looking for. Now, I can tell you that I knew of this woman. I knew of her family. And I knew that these were people that were worth my time helping. And I can tell you they are people that you and those you love would be very quick to assist the kind of people that came to me this day. And I agreed to help. She offered me payment, wealth, a lot of wealth. But that's not how I work. I'm a man of fair means myself. I have the ability to procure funds and a way of life at any time should I wish. I'm not a man who's looking for money. What I trade in, what's important to me, is promises. I trade in promises. I will do this for you, you will do this for me. Or, in the future when I need something, you will assist me in this way. We will, that's what I barter in. Now, that's not to say that I haven't been known to trade items. Help me and I'll give you this. Sometimes I've given wealth to others for their help, much like I've come to help ask for your help today. But I know that you, at least some of your friends here, come from wealth and money is not something that you value. I understand that. But... I have to trade you something for your help. I have no choice in this. It's part of the rules. If you will help me find this circlet, which the moment I saw you, the moment I locked eyes with you, I could sense the next step that I needed to move forward with this. I know where I have to go next to get this. Whether it's there or there's someone there I need, I don't know. But I know where I have to go next because I found you. If you decline, you can do so. I will find another way. But if you choose to help me, I will offer you something that I think you might find very valuable in your current position. Now, when he says current possession, Seraph and friends have to kind of look at each other, right? 
How much does he know about their current possession position, right? Does he know about Oramon? He obviously knows that Dina fled and they're off to get them. Dina was in danger. Who's Dina? Does he know about who she really is? They sure don't want to ask him, because if he doesn't know, they don't want to give him any more info than they need to, right? Hi, Gorb. I'm sorry. I just saw you said chat a minute ago. I'm so sorry that I missed you. Your hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Going well. Um, so they're kind of in a weird spot. They want to find out what he knows, but without clear up asking him how much he knows, because that'll let him know there's more stuff. And if what he's saying is true, and he can put clues and things together, they want to be real careful with what they give out as well. And Seraph's like, okay. Then what is it that you're offering? Hello, Builder. Red smiles. Seraph asked him, by, by Seraph even asking, it means Seraph's entertaining that thought. Because Seraph's got a thing about this. Listen, I'm trying to get her safe. We're trying to protect her. We're trying to find the best way to do that. We're not really in a position to just go off on a quest, potentially bringing her into more danger. He doesn't. They don't know where this circle is or what it is, right? Do we want to traipse her into this problem you're dealing with? Sounds like whoever put this soul in a gem is someone strong enough to put a soul in a gem. That's a lot of power. Do I want to bring Dina into contact with that type of thing? How do I know you're the only one searching for? All this is racing through their minds. And Red smiles. And he slowly takes his hand and reaches into his pocket, into his jacket. And he pulls something out and he sets it on the table in front of him. And immediately, Seraph and Deacon's eyes go wide because they know what that is. Sitting on the table in front of him is a key. The key itself is silver looking, though it's not silver. And while it looks plain, it's well made. They have seen keys like this before. Because these are the keys that someone can use to travel through the realm gates that exist on merged worlds. Now, if you're relatively new to the story, let me talk about those. Realm gates just appeared on merged worlds. There are large arches of different sizes, depending on where you go, but large enough that multiple people could go through with a wagon. and They're always of a decent size. And at the time, no one knew how or why or what they were doing there. Although since then, the battles and the quest have revealed that they were created by Omnion and Omniana, Omniana, who are, of course, the god of chaos and order that caused the whole Merge Worlds thing to happen. Realm gates allow people to literally move thousands of miles walking in one gate and exiting out another. If you know the name of the gate you're trying to go to, you can open up your gate to go through there. So imagine it almost like a teleporter, right? If you're holding a key and you activate a realm gate, you know the name of that gate. You automatically know it. It pops into your mind, you know it. So you can come back to it if you want to. Just having a key and bring it to a realm gate, you know the name of that gate. And if I know the name of another gate, I open up a doorway between the two of them. 
Now, why does this matter to Seraph? Because there's a realm gate in Serenity. Day and a half, two days to the north of the city proper is the Serenity realm gate. Mercy has a gate key. So does Draven. So does Darsh. At the, no, is it Dandy? Dandy has one at this time. Dandy and Draven has one, and so does Mercy. And that's very often how they travel to the other kingdoms that they work with. They trade with the Dwarven Kingdom of Corman. There's a gate there. The Dwarves have a key. That's how Cole, the ambassador and their friend, travels and trades goods. Paxawal, they have a way of going to and from Paxawal. It's how they trade with Paxawal. There is not a gate. There's a gate relatively close to Firemoon, and that's how uh, Rafe and Deacon get there and forth. But if there's a gate anywhere around here, that's passage directly home. We have that key. We use the gate. And I, I guarantee you, Seraph and Deacon both know the name of the gate in Serenity and probably the one in Firemoon. Either one of those is walking into a land of incredibly increased safety for them and for Dina. They pop up the gate in Serenity. There's an entire fort of Serenity guards and mages who are at that gate to make sure nothing bad ever comes through it. They pop through. They literally have the Serenity army to help escort them back to Serenity. A two-day travel at most. Or for Seraph, much faster. Right? So you can only imagine getting that key could solve all the issues they were just trying to have of how do we get back home. That key has more value to them than any treasure he could have ever offered. And he knows that. And he also knows that Seraph and Deacon are good people. Sometimes people can use that goodness against them. And he just reaches out, takes the key, tucks it back inside of his jacket while they're just watching him do it. Because they'd never take it from him. They won't steal it. They're not that kind of person. You know what I mean? If he was a villain and they killed him and it was loot, that's different. But he's not. He's saying, if you help me, I can give you a way to get home. Almost instantly. And they ask the, of course, immediate question is, is there a realm gate anywhere near here? And he looks at them and says, I guarantee you, I can find you one. Because that's what Red does. He's the man that gets you things. If you help me, I'll help you get home. To the place that is the most safe for the person you most love. Now, of course, the option there is to think about it, talk about it, consider it, but that doesn't happen. Seraph says yes. Yes. As long as you don't have me hurt the innocent, as long as you don't ask me to do something I'm not capable of doing, as long as what you're doing is for the right reasons and I'm not hurting someone for no reason, I will help you in exchange for that key. Yes, I will in a heartbeat. And that's very decisive of Seraph. You know what I mean? He's like, I will do that. And Red just smiles and says, Excellent. Happy to have you aboard. Seraph turns 
to Dina and opens his mouth to speak and she says, oh no, you are not leaving me here. He's like, I don't know where this is going to lead you. And no, and I don't know where it's going to lead you either. But I'll be damned if I'm going to stay here or anywhere while you're off tramping around helping this nice gentleman. I've already almost lost you once. I'm not willing to do that again. Where you go, I go. That's the promise we made each other. Seraph's kind of helpless, and he looks to Deacon and Mugen, who are looking at him like, you know we're coming too, right? There's just no way we're going to let you walk off with this guy and not go with you. And Seraph, you know, he has that thought in his mind like, ah, I, how do I convince them? And then knowing there's nothing he can do. While they're sitting there looking at each other and having this conversation, Red stands up slightly abruptly, and they're all like, okay. And he looks and he goes, then we have an agreement. It'll take a couple days for me to get the supplies we'll need to where we're going next. I will return for you the morning after tomorrow. Which is good, because they've got stuff they need to get the next day, the things that the blacksmiths make. I will return here in two days. In the morning, we will leave. I will bring horses for all of you. Don't worry about that. I have means, and I will arrange for the supplies that we will need. Because we will need some special things. Please, be ready to go in the morning. And holds out his hand, and Mugen's like, Oh, right, yeah. And hands him his sword back. Sorry about that. Nice sword. He's like, thank you. He slides it back in his sheet. And with a nice bow and a little flip of his big red floppy hat, he turns and makes his way out of the inn, leaving the four friends sitting at the table completely boggled. What did we just get ourselves into? Is he truly a friend of my father's? Seraph has to think. It's the words he said, that phrase. It's your choice, Seraph. It'll always be your choice. For some reason, that just resonated with him, and he knew that that was important, though he doesn't know why. So he made a choice, and has agreed to help Red find this circlet to save a young man's soul. And we'll learn about exactly where they're going next episode. That's where we're going to call it for this episode. As I've said in the past, I'm trying to make them episodes between one and one and a half hours. I used to tell two to three hour streams, and a lot of feedback came from folks that they had a very hard time catching up on them because of how long they are. So I am keeping them a bit shorter, so a little bit easier to consume by the next episode, and people don't fall behind. Um, so hopefully everybody's okay with that. If you want longer episodes, shorter episodes, hey, throw that feedback in my Discord channel, Only Draven Gaming. Always want to make sure I'm providing the content you folks are listening for. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Merged Worlds. Oh, I've got a question. Jim says, great episode. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. And Gorb says, did we ever figure out about the book in the castle? Oh, no, Gorb. I've not mentioned the book or what that book really is at all. All we know is that Petal has it in her possession, and she hasn't told any of the others what the book is either. Great question. Great question. 
Uh, Robert Earl Working says that was my, that was fantastic. This is my first Merge World stream. I'll be sure to tune in next. Time. Excellent. Well, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you. Merge Worlds is a series that I've been a story that D and D campaign that I've been running for over 34, 35 years now. I was eleven. Now I'm forty five. So, what's that? No. Thirty five. Math, man. I'm not. I tell D and D. I don't know math. Uh, but I've been telling it for a long time. Uh, so all episodes are available, of course, here on YouTube. You can see the video, or you can go to uh, iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff available as an audio podcast. Uh, definitely, uh, King, if you haven't yet, or King, uh, my website, onlydraven.com, if you go there, um, you'll find a tab that says Characters, and you'll see um, where I've painted, uh, digitally, painted figures on Hero Forge for all the main characters and the gods of Merge Worlds and a lot of the lore Merge Worlds. A lot of that's there. So, uh, definitely if you want to check out some of the old episodes and catch up, be sure to give that a shot, because uh, I would uh, love to hear that. Let's see. Uh, Builder says, well, 34, 5 years, uh, that is a while. Glad you're dedicated. I like when you do. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's, uh, Merge Worlds has been my passion, uh, for the majority of my life at this point. I've been tell- created this world. It's a homebrew world uh, that I created. And uh, if you check out the first episode, you'll learn a lo- uh, how Merged Worlds came to exist. Because Merged Worlds is a world that literally these people all living on has existed for less than 25 years of their lives. Merged Worlds is literally a new world. And how a world was created, uh, you learn all about that in episode one. So, excellent. Uh, But thank you all very much for coming. Please, if you haven't already, be sure to click that like button. And if you have iTunes, Spotify, or any of that stuff, it would mean the world to me. If you wouldn't mind giving us a follow on the podcast networks, Uh, and if you can, throw a rating in there, the stars and the stuff. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to get the story to as many people as I can so I can share it. Uh, It means the world to me, and the opportunity to do so is all because of you folks turning in all the time. So, uh, thank you very, very much uh, for letting me tell you my Merge World stories. And I will be back here again in two more weeks. We tell the story every other Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so swing on by the live streams and check one out. And I'm happy to answer questions in real time. Here in the near future, I'm going to schedule a Merged Worlds AMA. I haven't done one in a while where people can ask questions about the world and how it works and the characters. And I'll share everything I can that doesn't ruin, you know, give away anything of the upcoming story. Uh, so we'll be doing a special Merge Worlds AMA probably in, uh, sometime this month in November. So keep an eye out for that as well. Okay? Alright folks, you all have yourselves a wonderful evening. Enjoy yourself. Be safe. And come on back here in two more weeks and listen to a little bit more Merge Worlds. You all guys all have yourselves a great night. Thank you.